Yeah, I'm on. Okay, good. Well, good morning, and my name is Sam, and uh, we are going through the book of James, and we print up a couple more of those study guides for people that might want to uh, engage with them. Take one, please, but use it. Um, use it to, uh, to think about maybe some of the things that, uh, some of the things that are in the commentary I don't necessarily address. That's why I wrote them down, so I didn't have to. Um, and so there's some questions in there that help you to engage beyond Sunday morning. Um, and also there's some questions for those who have kids or, or even youth that uh, uh, are great for discussion. I don't know if uh, you ever have discussion about what was uh, um, maybe shared on Sunday morning, but I hope that you will. Uh, we believe, at least um, I believe, that kids can handle truth at a really young age, and I just don't think we actually ask them to uh, talk about it. The other day my She's how old is he? Five-year-old was driving with me in my truck and asked me if he was a Christian. I was like, well, that's an interesting question from a five-year-old. So we began to discuss, I don't know, you tell me, what do you think a Christian is? And so we uh, began to talk about the gospel, and uh, he did a pretty good job of, uh, of teaching me and preaching to me. So, um, and my eight-year-old gave us his second sermon about uh, a month ago, um, and he, uh, he preached from the soul. Uh, it was pretty funny to watch him. He set up a little podium in front of uh, our uh, living room and just started, like, had the hand motions down and was throwing it down. It was, it was awesome, and I, don't think, I think he repeated himself, like, you know, 10 or 11 times, but uh, he was passionate. He was passionate about it, and it was pretty awesome to see. And I think that's, it's not anything special that, you know, because, uh, you know, a pastor gets pastoral kids. It's just the fact that, you know, we honestly try to talk about Jesus a lot in our home. That's it. And uh, not even in really, like, this will sound bad, spiritual ways. We just mention Jesus' name a lot. So that's a way to do it if you're uh, interested. Um, well, whenever I preach a sermon, uh, just know that uh, I'm always God's first audience, if you will. And uh, this week is uh, um, perhaps uh, no different. I was preaching on, I'm preaching on trials and so I just got nailed with all kinds of stuff this week, which was really enjoyable. And I don't know if you ever have those weeks sometimes where you just feel like God is screwing with you a little bit. Um, I think, kind of like as a father, I sometimes screw with my kids a little bit. This is how I'm really sadistic and mean. But I just, sometimes I do stuff like my wife, even to my wife, who's like, you know, you're more like a brother than a husband. And there's little things that I'll do to bug them and give them conflict or whatever, just because, and it's kind of enjoyable, and sometimes I think God is doing that with me, and the beauty of it is that I can, when I'm tempted to think that that's happening, I know that in reality, God is not a screwed up dad like me, who uh, screws with his kids, but that he is the perfect parent, and he actually has a purpose with everything he's doing with me, for better or worse, uh, and I trust that. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter uh, one again, and uh, we're going to be uh, beginning in verse five. But I'm going to actually read a verse out of Philippians to begin our time here. Uh, Paul was in jail in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter, so it's a really interesting letter, letter to read, uh, knowing that context and some of the things he says just kind of are very surprising to us, knowing the situation he's in. But in the very uh, first chapter of Philippians, uh, in verse three, he says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, as he writes to the church of Philippi, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 6 in particular, 
And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says here that, uh, that we're a work in progress. That uh, Jesus is, is still building. And I think, I don't know if you ever doubt that, not, I think it's easy to accept that we're a work in progress because we can see a lot of the issues that we personally have and that others might have. And so we're like, dude, that guy's a work in progress. And you know that and you can see that. But when I mean I say, do you ever doubt that? Do you ever doubt maybe that God is actually still building? Is actually still constructing? That you are being moved in a certain way? And last week, James taught us that God allows, ordains, or sends, however word makes you most comfortable, trials into our lives to test our faith. And it's in those moments that I think, maybe for the first time in a long time, conversations with God get sparked. And typically it starts something like this. Where the snarf are you? Why is this happening to me? Up until that point, we may have not had many discussions with God, but when something hard hits, we start asking some hard questions of God or maybe of others. I must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. Satan must be doing something to me. And regardless of of who brings the trials or how innocent we think we are in the midst of the trials, like I didn't cause this, um, I don't think we like any trial, and I speak for this personally, because typically something's being taken away, and typically, I think, they teach us something about ourselves, specifically something about our faith. And it's hard to be taught stuff. I'm not very good at being taught stuff. I like to learn stuff, but I as many of you maybe have done in the past, used to sit in churches and just be so critical of the pastor, dissecting everything they said, dismissing what I felt, "Mm, I wouldn't have said it that way, or I think that's wrong, or, (laughs) or, you know, filling in the blanks, whatever, and I had a very uh, critical spirit, if you will. And so, like, oftentimes God, bless her heart, teaches me a lot of things to my wife, and she will tell you that the first thing she often will do, she's very careful about bringing stuff up, because not because she doesn't want, because I'm just really bad at receiving teaching, and she'll say, well, have you ever thought, she'll ask questions, like God did to Moses, have you ever thought this? And uh, I'll immediately get defensive, because in that moment, typically what happens is I see something about myself that I am scared of, don't like, don't want to talk about, ignore, and I don't like it. And so, we don't like trials because I think they teach us about who we are, and specifically in this context, about our faith. And I think many of us, if we had the choice, we would stay exactly as we are. We like ourselves. I mean, we're just inundated with that. I know the schools are with self-esteem. Accept who you are. Be prideful about who you are. And I understand the intent of that. But what it maybe fosters in a lot of us is this idea that I'm going to stay exactly who I am because I'm great. I am fantastic. And it's not that we don't want anything better in our lives. Some of us want maybe a new nose. Some of us want like more muscles. Some of us want hair. I mean, some of us want a lot of things. But I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the core of our character. I don't know how many of us would be honest enough to say, well, here are the things that I probably should change in my life. You know, it's like that question you get at the interview where they say, you know, what is your greatest challenge, translated? What are you bad at? What's your weakness? And you always try to say something that really doesn't sound like a weakness. Well, I just, 
put too much time into things. I put too much energy. I'm just too creative, you know. <laughs> or a real safe one, like, I procrastinate. Oh, duh. Like, who doesn't procrastinate? But I'm talking about all, put all that stuff aside at the core of your heart. I think most of us would rather stay exactly as we are, not because we necessarily like all the aspects of it, because it's just too painful. It's too painful to change. And like I said last week, we'll always give ourselves tests that we can pass, but that's the reason I think God brings us tests, so that He will push us into places we never would go on our own. And so, I think even if we know it's not best for us to stay as we are, when we read that God sends us uh, trials, and you know, whether physical, emotional, financial, we, uh, we don't like that. We'd rather have a low-maintenance kind of stick to myself, leave me alone life. I think that maybe once we, you know, if and will you become a Christian, we look at God and we say, hey, thanks for letting me into heaven and stuff. Really appreciate that. Sending your son to die in my place. That's awesome. Could you go do your cosmos thing, God thing over here and just kind of leave me alone? You don't bug me, I won't bug you. I think a lot of us, if we're really honest, Maybe approach God that way. Now, James 1.4 we ended with last week said, And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I believe that God loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. He loves us way too much, even if we don't admit that we aren't what we should be or, or whatever, even if we don't know what that is. He loves us too much to... Leave us the way that we are. And so God brings these trials into our life. And I think many of us believe in the midst of the trial, as we go, where are you, God? What are you doing? I think that a trial in an individual's life, whether it be physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, whatever it happens to be, is not actually evidence of God's absence. If we turn that totally upside down and say, perhaps it's actually the greatest evidence of God's presence in our life. That God is actually there refining us. Because He uses trials, James says, to move us forward in spiritual maturity. And He states that we are undeveloped, we are imperfect, we are incomplete, we're not whole. We lack a bunch of stuff and He doesn't want us to lack anything. And so He's going to give those things to us. Trials come because we don't have something in us. There are parts of us that are being developed and perhaps there's even parts of us that are missing altogether in some sense. So, James said something really difficult last week because uh, he tells us that we're supposed to consider this experience of being refined, joyful. And I think sometimes we read joy and we think happiness. And I've always felt that there's a difference between the weight of joy and happiness. I mean, we live in a country where uh, one of the foundational principles, you know, Pursuit of life, liberty, and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I know many people in my own family that happiness, what makes me happy, they will say that flat out, is what governs their life. That is the the truism that is, is foundational to their life, what makes them happy. But I've seen that, that faith in that statement, that, that way of leading, that wise little pithy statement, I've seen what that does to people's lives. And the people I have encountered who actually state that, 
their lives are inconsistent and erratic as they look for something to make them happy consistently. Because I believe happiness is based solely on circumstances. And it's dictated by circumstances as we seek what is most pleasurable and avoid what is most painful. And joy for me is very much different in that it's way beyond circumstances. It is outside circumstances. Happiness is dictated in the moment, in the momentary situation. Joy is rooted, I believe, in the timeless truth of God despite the situation. There is a difference between the two. So when trials come, it seems that it can go one or two ways. It's not joy or happiness. Happiness for me is out the, out the door. You either have joy, as James talks about, or you have the opposite of joy. Those are the only two places it can go when trials come. And so, what's the opposite of joy? Well, it's not happiness. Those aren't even the same. It's joy, the weight of joy despite circumstances, or I believe it's misery. Or maybe more specifically, bitterness. So when trials come, we have actually two ways to go. And you've seen this maybe in your own life and the lives of others. Something hard will come into the life, and they will either experience a peace and a joy, or you will see their life fall apart as they are sorrowful and then eventually bitter. Bitter at people, bitter at themselves, bitter at God. We either draw near to God or run away. There's no like in-between. We either embrace God in the midst of that trial, even if we're just holding on to Him weeping, or we're flailing our arms and holding up a fist. Now, when we're in the thick of circumstances like those really difficult, that tangled web, it's very hard to see anything but this purposeless mess. I understand that. There are people in here that have experienced tragedies that I can't imagine, and in trials that are unique to you, and I've experienced my own trials that maybe for you be like, big deal. Everyone has their own colored trial. And in those trials, there's times we aren't sure how to respond, what to do, and we can't possibly see how this is going to lead us anywhere. And today, James tells us what dictates why it goes one or two ways. And he talks about God's wisdom. And it's not wisdom that comes from men. It's a flat gift of God that empowers us to see all of life as serving God's purposes. And that is a gift of God. Because I have met people and seen people and read about people whose lives are so broken. And yet they are at peace. And I can't explain that by intellectual circumstances. It will go one or two ways. And I think wisdom will determine whether you grow bitter or you become joyful and mature in their circumstance. So we're going to read James chapter 1 and see what he says. Verse 5. It says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the very thing we need in the midst of trials, the very thing that we have to have is the one thing we will never admit that we don't have, which is wisdom. 
No one likes to hear or believe that they are foolish, that they are stupid. But in wisdom literature, the opposite, opposite of wisdom is foolishness. It seems like we're, we're one of two things. Without God's wisdom, we are fools. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is the greatest and most important possession someone can have. And wisdom literature describes what the heart of a fool is. If you read the book of Proverbs and even in Ecclesiastes, it says in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yes, I just admitted at times I'm a fool when I don't receive instruction. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Man has to overcome the pride. Sam has to overcome the pride. You have to overcome the pride to admit that you actually need wisdom. And the foolish person, it says, doesn't need anybody. Doesn't need God. Doesn't need anything but they are self-sufficient within themselves to figure out whatever it is, to grit their teeth, you know, American independence, work hard, whatever, and get through it. That's a fool, it says. The truth is, wisdom is not something we possess. We don't have it. We can't, even godly wisdom can't obtain it. It comes from God. And wisdom will determine whether or not the trial sent by God will break us or build us. It's interesting, Ecclesiastes, another piece of wisdom literature, says this. 2.14 in the book Ecclesiastes, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. See, someone who receives wisdom will see and experience the exact same trial differently than someone who does not. They experience the exact same trial differently, and the difference is the wisdom. And wisdom has much more than just skillfully knowing. It has to do with, I'm sorry, skillfully, has less to do with skillfully knowing and more to do with skillfully living. It is the ability, I believe, to apply what you know to the trials of life. And many people will have quoted this verse in James 1.5, even you and myself, to, uh, to talk with people and to encourage them whenever they encounter a trial or a problem or a difficult decision. It's always like James 1.5, God will give us wisdom. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's important to encourage people to look to God for wisdom, but I don't know if that's what James is talking about specifically. Because by that, by saying that, well, you know, in this difficult time, in this decision you've got to make, what to do, where to go, um, how to act, I think a lot of times we're, we're usually hoping God will just tell us what to do to get out of this trial. That's what we mean by wisdom. And I think certainly that's, that's part of it. I just don't know um, if that's what James is talking about here because it's in the context not only of pain, but it's also in the context, if you read those first couple of verses, of growth and maturity. It's not just getting out of it and hope you learn something. You're in the trial for the purpose of growth because we lack something. I mean, our faith is so, pra- it's so pragmatic. We pray to God in the midst of the trial, hoping that I mean, the glory of God is going to be revealed by how He gets me out of the trial. That's, I think, how a lot of us pray. Watch God work here. Look how he got me out of that. 
as opposed to seeing the glory of God in what He does in your own heart in the midst of the trial. We don't pray, even expect that kind of thing to happen. Our hope is to see Him get us out of it versus actually seeing Him change us in the trial. And I believe that at the core, whether the trial is big or small, destructive or just irritating, which there's all kinds, whether it's physical, emotional, financial, whatever it is, I believe that God's shaping us at the core of it is His intent to reveal the idolatry of our heart. That is what His hope is. And I wonder if that's what wisdom He's giving us is actually revealing. Because oftentimes I experience trials and, and I experienced a ton this week and I had people that, honestly, I was just like going, you are a freak and I'm bothered by you and I haven't done anything and uh, you bother me. And then stuff that I did myself and the whole time I'm thinking, God, get me out of this praying. Wow, these trials, if these people weren't here, gosh, it'd be so much better. And him going, what? It's about you, actually. You don't get it, do you? It's about what you are learning, about how you're being shaped. Yeah, all that stuff, they're being shaped in their own ways too. But the trial and the wisdom I'm going to give you is to reveal the dependence you have on something else other than me. God gives us wisdom, I believe, not necessarily to see the path out, but to see those idols within our heart. And I'll just do a big reveal. Ready? You want to know what idols you have in your heart? It's the things that you say, I have to have. It's the, I have to have blank. And some of us, honestly, it's I have to have health. I have to be healthy. It's important to me. And next thing you know, you're sick. And your world comes crashing down around you. I have to have wealth or financial security. That's, that's the way we like to say it. It really means wealth. Okay? And we all have a different definition of wealth. But I have to have financial security. I have to have it. Next thing you know, you lose your job. Guess you didn't have to have that. Then you have people say, I have to be beautiful. I have to have people think I'm beautiful. I have to have power. I have to have family. I have to have kids. I have to have a relationship. If I don't have this relationship, my world is, is rocked. I have to have people like me. That's very difficult for me. As much as I'm like, you know, just in your face, like, yeah, whatever. I, I really don't like it when people don't like me. But that's an idol. Now, I believe that God brings these trials into our lives as a way to reveal, first of all, and then remove those idols. And they're not punishments. It's not like God looks down and is like, I have to have health. Oh, yeah? Cancer. It's not like that. If you begin to understand that this life we have is a simply a speed bump to eternity, and His goal is to make you more like Christ, and looking like Christ is only going to happen when you die, from birth to death, we are being shaped and purified. The entire way. You never, you never arrive here. You never make it here. It's not like, I finally achieved blank. You, you don't. It doesn't happen. And so He's constantly purifying you feels like punishment because every trial, something's being taken away is typically, I think, one of the have-to-haves. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of some of the terrible trials that come into people's lives. 
But oftentimes, we're so much concerned about getting away from the trial and getting away from pain and finding joy that we are missing actually what God is trying to teach us in the moment about our own heart and what He's exposed in terms of our dependence. I mean, this economy falling down and people losing their jobs, okay, granted, first of all, a lot of people have been rocked. Very practically rocked. Tough to pay bills, all these things. I wonder how many people have stopped and gone, Matt, how much faith did I actually put in that job? How much identity did I put in that job? How much did I have to have that job? And now it's been removed and they're going, well, who am I? I used to sit down, the first question people talk about, right? What do you do? I don't do anything now. And it feels maybe okay because so many other people lost their job and maybe you haven't gotten to that place, but in reality, security. And granted, for this first year, first time ever, my salary comes from people who are moved by God to give. You think that doesn't give me any like pause? Like, I am just so giant of faith. No. Start revealing some idols in my heart. Who do you really believe in? I was talking to Kalen the other day because uh, we watched a show on hoarding. Okay, you know, like people that like put all kinds of stuff in their house and like it's like it's crazy. Not like, hey, you got a little extra stuff there. Like you have a little bit of house there and lots of stuff type of thing. Right. So we're watching this show and I began to talk to her about like, yeah, our garage looks pretty bad, huh? And uh, she's like, yeah, she wrote a note to me the other day, uh, just yesterday saying um, clean out garage and stop beginning stages of hoarding, which it wasn't. But that was the context of what we come from. But if you go into my garage, there was all these boxes, and what they were, full of files from my teaching days. Handouts, all the stuff. I mean, like, probably, I don't know, ten boxes. And they're sitting on top of our air hockey table. Kids can't play, right? And I began to ask her, I said, why do you think I've kept all those files? I'm just kind of talking out loud, and she was like, I don't know, are you ever going to use them again? I was like, well, I got most of them digital, you know, digital on the computer. She's like, why do you have that? And I said, Maybe part of it is, quite frankly, that I really haven't fully removed my identity as a teacher and accepted my identity as a pastor. That I'm still holding on to those pieces and, you know, burning that stuff or getting rid of it like, kind of gets me to twitch. You know, why? Because I can always go back to teaching, right? I got all the stuff in case everyone leaves and that's over, you know. And that, that security, that that's bringing me security, it's an idol. It's an idol. And it's not that God's like, you're the, the idol, what are you doing? He's patient and He's loving, but it's an idol because it is bringing me more security to have that there, to know that just in case you don't work out for me, God, I've got this thing over here that you know brings me some hope and meaning. And so I think sometimes that our struggles in those trials are an opportunity to purely depend upon Jesus. To purely test our faith, to purify our faith. And no one says it's easy. It is very painful. But it's more painful, I think, to see the darkness that's in your heart than it is to actually experience the trial practically itself. For me. And it says God gives us wisdom. We might get through this trial. And, and James says that He gives us wisdom when we ask. But let's be honest, we don't. 
I won't ask for hands, but how many of you, outside of just praying for wisdom to get out of the situation, have just prayed for wisdom? Because James doesn't say, pray for wisdom to get out of the situation. He's in the context of maturity. If you don't understand what's going on here, pray for wisdom. I don't think we oftentimes ask. But James describes God the Father as one who gives generously. Literally, it means He is the giving God. It's His very nature to give. And He doesn't give because He's obligated to. He wants to give. He also says He gives to all who ask. He gives to all His children, not just the one that we think He you know, should, the ones that deserve it, even if it's you. I probably shouldn't ask because I haven't been very good lately. He says He gives without reproach, which I think is one of the best. He does not rebuke us when He asks. He doesn't say, I told you so. Why didn't you ask sooner? You went through all of that mess when you could have asked me a long time ago. Isn't it obvious this is what you need? I like how uh, Jesus describes the Father in prayer in Luke 11. He says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, I love Jesus, right? If you then, who are evil, we just very matter of fact, know how to give good gifts to his children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice he didn't say, how much more will God give you the way out of your situation? He says, no, we'll give you himself who ask him. But wait, wait, you said in the beginning, for everyone who asks, receives. Like, ask anything? He'll give you the Holy Spirit. And he'll give you exactly what you need. I have wondered, uh, I was sitting in this, honestly, I prayed for more wisdom this week to understand the trial of putting together this sermon because it was so difficult and some of the trials that I have in a long time. And I was wondering, I began to think about my own relationship with my dad. And I love my dad, but, you know... I, I wouldn't give him the, you know, Father of the Century Award if there was one. Not because he was abusive or mean. It's just because, ideally, I go, man, you weren't perfect and neither am I. I wouldn't give myself the award. But I wouldn't say I had a terrible fatherhood. I think I had a, uh, a good fatherhood experience. But as we know, many of us, and I see my kids even do this today, typically when the kids want something, they go to mom, right? They always go to mom because mom, at least in our context, maybe it's Caitlin disagrees with me, but they seem to mom always seemed to say yes more than dad. Okay? I mean just like a matter of fact. And and so the kids would I remember asking Fisher the other day, he like was like, Where's mom? I was like, Why? Who's just where's mom? He's like, What do you need? Where's mom? She's busy. What do you need? I don't want to ask. Why? Because you always say no. It's like No, then. You know, whatever. But we always, and so the reason why is because Dad always said no. So I'm like, why? I started thinking, why did Dad always say no? And we think about, as we engage with our Heavenly Father, why we don't actually ask Him for anything, for prayer like this. And maybe part of it is that we think God's going to say no. But see, our Father, and my dad, I think maybe was like this. It's hard for me to remember, but I'm just going to say it was and hope he doesn't hear this podcast. But the idea of, him saying no was pretty consistent. And I think about why did Dad say no? Was it because he really didn't believe that I should have what I asked for? Or was my earthly father 
saying no so he didn't have to actually engage with me. That sounds really negative, but just in a very simple way, like, you know, too busy, I'm too busy. No, no, no. Like when my son the other day came and wrestled me and he socked me in the face, fat lip, bleeding. So easy for me to go, oh, but maybe I stop and ask, go, why is he like so rambunctious right now? Maybe it's because I haven't actually spent time with him. And that idea of the Heavenly Father isn't, don't don't get me wrong, the Heavenly Father does say no. But he doesn't say no like maybe our our earthly fathers who said no because I just don't want to be bothered right now. He says, ask. He wants to engage with us. He wants to interact with us. He is not that father who is dismissive. He says, ask me and I will give you exactly what you need. Your sons come to you. Your daughters come to you and they ask for things. They're not, you know what they need. They're not always asking for the right thing. You're not going to give them exactly what they want necessarily, but you're not going to dismiss them or you shouldn't. And the Heavenly Father certainly doesn't dismiss them without giving them exactly what they actually need in the moment. And I was blown away just by even that thought, convicted in the moment of going, why don't my kids ask me stuff as often? Maybe they do. Maybe they ask more than others. I don't know. But even thinking about the moment of actually, am I engaging the heart of my child here or am I dismissing them for the practical purposes of getting beyond to my stuff? That's a hard thing to ask. So the question is, have you prayed? Have you really prayed? In the midst of your trial, have you prayed? Have you you know, whether you're on your knees or not, but have you actually asked God? When someone comes in and you know, wants to maybe counsel with me, ask me a question, the first question I should be asking, maybe not enough, is, well, have you prayed about it? Who am I? I'm just a guy. Any of these pastors are just men. Have you prayed about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I threw it up once. I mean, no, no, did you really pray? Did you really pray about it? James 4.2, he says it later in the book of James, says, you do not have because you do not ask. I don't think we pray for wisdom sometimes. I mean, we pray for to get out of situations. I don't think we pray for wisdom, as James asks here, because we can't see how practically that will get us out of it, so it doesn't seem worthwhile. And it's risky to think that James says, it's going to be wisdom to reveal what's in your heart. Ooh, I don't know if I want to know that. I don't know if I want to know that. Verse 6 and through eight here, last half of it says why God wouldn't give wisdom. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. James says it very plainly. We want to like reinterpret it a little bit, but he says it very plainly that God won't help us in trials unless we pray in faith. And the concept of asking in faith has been hijacked by a ton of false teachers and been abused everywhere. And not only do these false teachers, I think, guarantee prosperity and health and wealth if they pray in faith, but they declare that you have trials in your life because you don't have enough faith which neither of those are true. According to James, God sends trials, period. And in my world, it is, again, evidence of God's presence, not His absence or my absence of faith. I think our faith is proven in whether or not, or it's not proven whether or not we have trials, 
But our faith is revealed as James is trying to push here in those trials. Now, God's not going to give us wisdom to endure and to move forward in the trial if we doubt Him. Faith and doubt in the most purest of concepts doesn't mean you never have any little doubt. But as you pray for wisdom, faith and doubt in that prayer cannot exist at the same time. If you believe, you don't doubt. If you doubt, you don't believe. So simple, but difficult for us, I think, to accept. What is doubting? I I like the story of Peter uh, and Matthew 14 as they're uh, getting in the boat and the waves are choppy and Jesus said, I'd meet you on the other side and says the disciples see him walking on the sea and they're terrified and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. And they cry out and Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's me. And Peter, got to love Peter. Peter's the guy that none of us want to admit that we want to be. Verse 28 in Matthew 14 says, uh, Peter answered, Lord, if it's you, command me to come onto the water. And he said, come. So he gets out of the boat. And he starts walking on the water. And verse 30 is very interesting in this concept of doubting. He says, but when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, He's on the water looking at Jesus. He saw the wind. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And Peter, uh, he never noticed the wind and the waves until he actually took his eyes off of Jesus. And Jesus calls that doubt. A prayer, just the act of prayer in itself, I think, is an act of complete dependence on God. But a faithful prayer, because people can pray. So in some way it's an act of dependence. I'm going to pray, but something happens in that prayer. A faithful prayer, James indicates here, is absolute confidence that he's going to give us what we ask. In this case, wisdom, not a way out. A faithful prayer for wisdom is a commitment to God's way of seeing things, His plans, and His hopes for our lives, despite and in the trial. Someone who is faithful never takes their eyes off Jesus, no matter how much it hurts. And that's difficult. I don't say that flippantly like, yeah, just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's hard. But Psalm 1 describes the faithful. Remember, James is trying to write this letter saying, okay, There's two types of people in this context here. The people are saying they're Christians. And let's see what that really means. See what the actions actually look like. And in Psalm 119.15, I love, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. It is a strong foundation. I will fix. Not I will check out your ways every now and then. I'll look at them occasionally. When things get hard, I'll glance at them. I will fix them and meditate on all the time. But the one who doubts, I believe, never takes their eyes off the chaos of the trial. They are consumed by it. They're overwhelmed by it. They are governed by the situation. They, cannot, they look at that the whole time. They may even pray to God for wisdom, but their next thought is, this will never work. Come on, how many of us have actually prayed that? 
approached it with an attitude of, I'm going to pray this, but like rubbing a genie bottle type of thing. I hope it works. Getting away from the trial becomes more important to us than getting closer to God, the person who doubts. And they're consumed, overwhelmed by what has happened in the past, what's happened now, or possibly what's going to happen in the future. Their future in their mind is already written out. I'll tell you all the contingencies are going to happen. And they're doubting. And James describes this person as a wave of the sea that is tossed and driven by the wind. Remember, he's given a context of people that are seafaring people. They understand what's going on with waves. I mean, a wave has no purpose in the middle of a sea. It has no clear direction. It has no rest. It is driven, as he says, side to side and tossed up and down. And these people, quite frankly, and I include myself in this at times, are emotionally unstable and they're indecisive and they're confused and they're bitter all because they're fearful. Like Peter. They're fearful. So the one who doubts is like a wave. And the one who doubts, he also says, receives nothing from the Lord. And I believe that that's the case because in their mind, and this is where you honestly need to search your own hearts, where they got into religion because, well, it's really not such a bad thing. And there might be some good stuff in it. And prayer becomes like one of those things that's good for you, like yoga or meditation. It's a good exercise. It's healthy to do that. And God becomes just one of the many options that are used occasionally, a tool to get away from those things that make me unhappy. And that person receives nothing from the Lord. And even, it's kind of a derogatory term, James says here. He says, that person, in some, tra- some translations, that man. He's like, that man. And this is after he's like, brothers, take trials, brothers. And he's like, that guy, that man, that person who's like that does not have a consistent faith of God. They pretend to, but when trials come, when something difficult comes, if it's just irritating or if it's major disruption, when those trials come, they measure everything according to what they feel and what they think, and they immediately doubt the truthfulness and the promises of God. Immediately. And he calls this person double-minded. Not only is this a wave tossed around, going crazy, not only can get anything, but he's double-minded. This is a very interesting term. He says this is more than this is more than just like, well, I know God's the master of the universe and knows everything, but I think there might be some better options. This is more than just measuring. We sometimes have a pragmatic approach to that. He says it's an issue of the heart, and he calls him double-minded, which in, in the Greek it's not always a bad term. It can mean to decide between two alternatives of things, being double-minded, to evaluate carefully, but when it's used negatively, which it is here, It describes people of two minds. And they're indecisive not just about the course of action, but actually about allegiance. It literally means two-souled. A two-souled individual. If you're called two-souled, it doesn't feel good. But you begin to see that this is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of idolatry. It has less to do with just practical, pragmatic, well, you just are choosing a bad option here. 
Pastor said, no, your allegiance is off. You actually do not trust God. When someone doubts like this, they confess that they know God, but they don't actually believe that suffering has any redeeming value. That their God is big enough to actually turn this, whatever your this is, He's actually not, when, when all comes sighted, He's not big enough to do it. Or He's big enough, but He doesn't want to. They believe that the solution to their trial and thus their joy will actually come from another place other than God's wisdom. Other than God Himself. And they pursue it. Even though they might pray. They pursue it. And when someone doubts like this, James says that not only are they miserable, but they are unstable in all of their ways. It infects everything. Because the very foundation is little more than, than rolling water. And it's not Christ. Think about that. If you stack an individual up for all the things that they are, their job, their fatherhood, their relationships, their motherhood, whatever it is, the things that make them who they are, their passions, if the foundation isn't Christ, if it's something else, when something gets knocked out, their entire world is rocked. If that career is their if that job is their foundation, and then Christianity, their faith is somewhere here or whatever, that knocks it out, everything goes crazy. But if your identity, if your meaning, if your purpose, if your hope, if everything is actually in the foundation of Christ and everything is stacked on top of that, you can lose it all, but you lose nothing. Because you realize that my identity comes from Jesus, not from the stuff of this world. And I do believe that God, when we get upside down, will come and go, like you know, that Jenga game, boop, and poke it out. Oh, you're so mean. No, you're idolatrous. And he wants more than anything. From Genesis to Revelation, God is more than anything concerned with his glory and us being passionate about who he is. And knowing and, and believing, which our Bible study on Wednesday is about, that that glory actually results in our joy. That he is most glorified, as Piper always says, when we're most satisfied in him. That is his goal. And I'm left to wonder, and this is something I was talking with Kaylin last night, and she's like, I don't know if I would say that that way, but whatever. I am left to wonder that if you can't believe in the wisdom of God to get you through that trial, not to find a way through, but to sit in the wisdom of God in the midst of the trial, to be shaped and to be grown in something better and greater than you could ever imagine, as God is glorified more than you can imagine, if you can't accept the wisdom of God, in fact, is salvation in the trials, why would you ever accept the foolishness of God of the cross as salvation for your souls? Seems like they both go out together. Because I think that James is trying to hit it very hard and saying, look, I'm going to draw a little bit of a line. If you truly say you believe Christians believe particular things and they act particular ways. I'm not making a, a, a list of moralism. I'm talking about our, our entire worldview, how we approach life in difficult times. And this entire letter, James is calling out these true believers. I mean, what would the church look like? What would our church look like to have a bunch of believers that know pain is hitting them, though difficulties are happening, they are faithful. How would people perceive that? 
how would that impact their communities, their neighborhoods, their families? To have a Father that no matter what, honey, God is faithful. We'll pray for wisdom here. Versus, hey, I don't know, honey. In the fetal position on the ground because they lost their job. There's a difference. And again, James is not saying this is extraordinary faith. This is ordinary faith. This is not some pie in the sky, cross your fingers, put on a good face faith. This is old school Retro faith called Christianity. And it's not that we never have doubts. Okay? Don't, like, well, I had a little bit of doubt today, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'm not a Christian. No. But it means when we go to God, we are really, hear this, that you are truly, as you pray, talking to the God of the universe. And He really hears you. And He really, really loves you. And He really is in control. And He wants to give you the best. Even that that means changing you a little. Or a lot. Christians depend on God and His wisdom in trials. Period. And when we don't understand something, we don't run from it, we don't fight it, or fight God, but we sit in the tension of the difficulty and fight the desire to flee and ask God for wisdom. And He gives it. And even though the gift may not take away the trial, even though it may not take away the trial, whether it be physical, emotional, financial, whatever. Remember, Paul prayed all the time, take away this thorn in my flesh. For years, take it away. And God said, no. But it didn't stop Paul from praying and asking and pleading as he learned more about himself and his own weaknesses. So even though our prayer may not take away that emotional, physical, even that financial pain, we have no doubt, Christian, that God is still at work. That He is there. More there than maybe we would ever admit. And as the great Job, Old Testament Job, the guy that lost his children, his entire family is wiped out, his wealth, his homes, everything. And after it's wiped out, he says, naked I came into this world, and naked I'm going back. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Richard Baxter, who was a pastor, great Puritan pastor, said, on his deathbed, I have pain. I have pain. But I have peace. I have peace. And I'll close with what Paul writes at the end of that Philippian letter, close to the end of it. In Philippians 4. Sounds just like James. Philippians 4 Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. When? Always. As He's in prison. And again I say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I love His Word. Always. Anything. But in everything. By prayer and supplication. 
with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and God will take it away. No. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, even if He doesn't take it away. Suffering and trials do and can glorify God. And I see that in the cross of Jesus Christ when I forget that that's possible. Because that's the worst thing I can possibly imagine happening, yet the most glorifying thing that ever has happened on the face of the earth. And we celebrate it every Sunday to admit that we are broken, to come to the table and to say, look, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm in this trial. I don't understand why I have to suffer like this. But the Lord does understand. And the Lord is in control. And so your act of coming up here is not to say, I know you're going to get me out of this. It's not to say, I understand exactly what you're doing, God, and I agree. It's to say, I don't know anything, but I trust in you. I trust in you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You as difficult as it is to pray for the trials that I've experienced in my life that have shaped me. The things that I would never choose to do. Never choose to encounter. Never choose to experience. But Lord, You use them to shape me. I pray that You will give us all wisdom not to understand exactly what You're doing. But Father, that we will see how You possibly are breaking us in our hearts. Even if we don't understand the circumstance, Lord, I pray You will take our eyes off the circumstance and put them onto You. May You increase our faith. Help us, Father, to confess our brokenness to You for the situations that we have put ourselves in. And empower us, Father, to live in such a way that is honoring to You and a witness to the world of what a Christian, someone who loves You, truly lives like in a trial. May your son be glorified by always sing and give and speak today. Amen.